Hello and welcome to another episode of How to Rock Virtual Engagements. My name is Alistair Davis. I'm your host from the company Jabba. Today we have a guest all the way from down under, Dr. Lloyd Fogelman. Dr. Fogelman is a recognized global expert in the realm of complex selling, and he's developed the Cortex Advanced Business Advisor methodology, which is now used in over 30 countries. Prior to founding Cortex, Dr. Fogelman worked at Accenture at the Boston-based Monitor Company, one of the world's leading strategy companies founded by Michael Porter. He's qualified as a clinical psychologist and received his doctorate from the University of London. He's a published author of approximately 50 publications in a variety of mediums. He has been a visiting scholar at Harvard University and a visiting professor at DePaul University in Chicago. He's also was the founder and director for the Center for Reconciliation in South Africa. And as part of the center, Lloyd established one of the largest trauma centers, which provided treatment for victims of apartheid violence. That's a mouthful, Lloyd. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Jesus, when I'm listening to it, it does sound like a mouthful. <laughs> I wonder I, I got... have time for fun. <laughs> so what do you do for fun? Uh, that, is a, that is a very good question. I, I think what I enjoy in part for fun, uh, outside of the obvious, but I enjoy ideas. I enjoy uh, work. Actually, work is, is, is part of my fun. I love it. Uh, I love conversations as today. I enjoy food. Food's yep. a big part of my life. Yep. Um, not fancy restaurants, but just good home restaurants that I used to enjoy prior to uh, COVID. Um, yep. Enjoy spending time with friends, family, the, the, the normal basics. Um, so th th those, are the, those are the things that I enjoy. But I enjoy ideas. I, I I, it gives me a lot of fun. Okay. Okay. And um, I, you, you are South African, as am I. And now you're living in Australia. How did you end up in Australia? It's a very good question. I'm, I'm not really sure how I ended up uh, in, in Australia. But let me sort of give you the probably three or four of the key reasons how I ended up here or maybe yep. uh, and I always find another one as I get older. Um, I was uh, pretty active in politics in South Africa in the 80s uh, and mm -hmm. then early 90s um, and uh, ended up in quite a lot of leadership positions uh, as the head of the student union and then on a organization which was then called the United Democratic Front, which got banned in 1985 by the apartheid government. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there were a series of states of emergencies. And then I set up the Center for the Study of Violence and Reconciliation uh, in 1988 with its trauma center. I think by 1992, uh, while I was still the founder and director of that and dealing a lot with victims of death squads, of rape, uh, probably of some of the most brutal violence going to death row where uh, many ANC people or uh, individuals who are associated with the ANC uh, were about to face execution. Yeah. And by 1992, I was pretty, uh, I had severe post-traumatic stress. Um, yeah. So. Uh, however, if you had told me that I was stressed, which my wife uh, told me, I, you know, you're very stressed. My first answer was, I'm not, which is sort of the classic post-traumatic stress uh, individual. By the time South Africa uh, becomes uh, a democratic country in 1994, criminal violence just escalates 
Um, and I sort of, I, I, I just look at myself and I think, I don't know, I've been experiencing violence for the last 15 or 18 years. Mm. Um, I'm not sure that I can endure, you know, another 30 years of this uh, in yeah. terms of my future. Yeah. And, and that was my desire to, to immigrate. Uh, the choice of Australia was more of a surprise than anything. Uh, I, most of my family were in the UK and I had studied in there uh, and or, or the States, but for a range of reasons, we, end up in, we ended up in Australia and we've now been here for uh, ooh, close to 23, 23 years now. Okay. Okay. And you said you studied in the UK. Um, so obviously you, you had many years of being exposed to violence and violent situations and people affected by violence. And then you did your, your doctorate in organizational psychology. Uh, are the two linked or is, is, was that just a continuation of your formal, formal education yeah, in psychology? My, my, thesis, my thesis, although I, I, am a, I was trained as a, as a clinical psychologist and my doctorate was more in organizational psychology but it was more around group behavior. So I was still looking at, at issues of political conflict and group conflict in, uh, in South Africa. So that was much more around uh, violence in group situations. And, and mm. really the question was, I was looking at uh, crowd violence, why some people in crowds commit violence and other people don't, despite yeah. the same levels of pressure that anybody in a crowd feels, the sort of contagion of, of, of needing to behave in, in a similar way to the crowd is very yeah. powerful. Yet some individuals for, for a range of different reasons resist uh, going along with the crowd, uh, which was really my thesis trying to answer that question. And did you answer it? I don't think very well. <laughs> <laughs> I, think it, I, I think it was, it was uh, it, it's very complex and I, I think probably you know, I looked at individual factors, I looked at different social pressures, uh, a, a range of things. Uh, honestly, I, I don't think the answer is clear. I think more and more as I've got older, I, I realized the power of genetics as a, as, as a key factor, biology as a key factor uh, that needs to be considered in, in all of our behaviors together with all the cultural and social and economic pressures that get put onto individuals. I don't think there's a clear answer. It's very similar to economics uh you know ask an economist to predict what the the future looks like of, of the economy in, in two years it's just there are just too many variables and yeah. at best we can get a percentage improvement on our answer um uh, which is why experts are frequently wrong uh, the best that an expert can do is they are a little better than than the average but but uh, on a complex issue uh you you have to know it's it's virtually impossible to get to get the actual prediction yeah speaking of complex issues i want you to look into your crystal ball and talk to me from a clinical psychologist's perspective you know the world is going to go through some serious changes in the future from now or it is going through changes as we speak and groupthink and organizations are going to change how do you think the world is going to change in this from this day forward in terms of selling in terms of communicating dealing with this trauma or this this change how, how do you think that's going to play out 
Well, there's a lot there in your question because, you know, you're asking, is there change in selling, changing in our behavior? I mean, I'll start just with, with a few observations and, and, and yeah. God knows we've all been wrong. Um, look, I, I think, you know, outside of the obvious, you know, your, your podcast is about the virtual world. I think mm -hmm. it's now pretty much a, a stated uh, conclusion, I think, that, you know, we will move much more to this virtual world. The technology has been tested. Uh, we seem to be occupying it well. People are now much more familiar and they see it actually works. Uh, yeah. And they see the quality of life improvements are substantive. They're not small. Uh, yeah. So generally, when we see change uh, to move to an alternative, the alternative has to be much better than the status quo, which yeah. is why most of us resist change. In this case, for many, uh, being at home and working from home is much better than the status quo. And so I do think uh, from that point of view, uh, we will see a change. That's no different, by the way, if you're selling and you're selling and, and, and your competition is an incumbent, the buyer is always reluctant to move uh, to a new supplier if you are just a little better than, than, your, than your competitor. You have to be much better, which is why frequently the incumbents hold such advantage. So if we look at that, if we take that sort of iron law and we say, well, we can now see substantive improvements in our quality of life for, for many of us, not for all of us uh, in a virtual world. It's depending on how large your space is, your physical space, your economics, but all things being equal, we would see that. I think the other thing we will probably see, I mean, I think from a political point of view is... Um, you know, as much as there's heightened cooperation, I think we already know we see we seeing much more heightened nationalism and a much more localized approach. And, you know, many of our clients already uh, who are pitching and are starting to 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 reshape their products are now talking about localization uh, as a key feature, meaning you're buying from this country. You bu we know this region. Uh, and mm. I'm already seeing that in client speak across a range of different industries. So. Um, I think that's that, that that's that's another massive massive dimension. I'd say the other is that working at home and virtually actually unconsciously provides a lot more autonomy than you think. Suddenly you're in control of when you eat, when you travel, the temperature in your room. You don't have to moan about people moaning is it too cold? Uh, who's sitting next to who? Or yeah. have you got a meeting room? Yeah. Haven't you got a the level of autonomy and control you have if you have a good working environment at home is substantive. And I think that is going to be a very, very powerful force, um, you know, going, going forward. Um, I mean, look, there's, there's 150 other changes that I could probably articulate, but let, let me just stay with that. Yeah. Yeah. And what about the people that say, well, you know, virtual, you know, I've, I've just, it's, go back a bit. I believe that virtual is obviously going to add quality of life. It's going to add new markets, but it's not going to take the, it's never going to replace face-to-face. -face. We're not saying that. I don't believe that face-to-face -face is ever going to go away. We always need that. That is always going to be the gold standard in terms of meeting, in terms of communicating with an audience. But in terms of reading behavior, you know, as a psych, as a clinical psychologist, virtual, how do you say to, what would you say to people who say, well, virtual you know, you can't read body language. You can't read those soft cues that might be that you might need if you want to understand how your message is being heard by an audience. Yeah. 
No, I think that's true. I mean, the, the amount of evidence you have available to you in a face-to-face -face situation is overwhelming. I mean, you, you can see body language, eye contact, is the person fidgeting, isn't, aren't they fidgeting? Uh, you, you, you've, got a, you, you know, you've got a plethora of signals that, that, that are available for you, for you to analyze. Um, and so uh, that is true, and you definitely miss out on that. But let me take the alternative to that, is if, if I'm a, a young person working in a large corporate and an institution, and I can't see my boss in front of me in face to face, uh, and my boss may be much older than me, uh, may have a more powerful presence than me, suddenly, because I can't see those cues, uh, I actually feel a lot more confident. Right. Um, suddenly, those, those, those cues that are, are making me more timid and more intimidated and more fearful disappear. So I think it depends where you sit on that hierarchy. You actually might see a lot of upside coming for, for, for a number of people in the virtual space where they get their voice heard and they, they feel more confident to speak because they're not faced with all these biases. Uh, negative biases that that they believe are there. Now, on the other hand, I, I would agree with you. So to change topics slightly there, um, and, I, and I'll come back to, if you remind me, just come back to some of our failures in Cortex, where, where we, bit, we bet quite big on the virtual learning, uh, probably overestimated that. But yeah. I think face-to-face -face is there. I think that there's good enough reason, when even if we see in the world of COVID, why people break the rules in lots of countries, why social distancing gets broken is because people need to, to connect uh, physically and on a face-to-face -face basis and, and touch, right? Touch is core to, to the human endeavor. It's core to wanting to be, it's core to feeling. Um, and so people need all of that. Um, but, but maybe what this has shown is we can do with a lot less. Uh, we mm. can't do without it, but we can do with a lot less. So I think this is just, this is a percentage issue rather than a, you know, binary issue. Okay. You spoke about bias and one of the things you said you wanted to talk about was bias. What do you mean by bias? Well, bias, bias is we all have, we all have biases. Um, you know, we, I, th I think that's what behavioral economics has, has done so well in the last 40, 45 years has taught us about inherent biases that shape our decisions. So let's go back to that example that I gave a bit earlier. I'm, I'm 25 years old. I'm sitting in a large corporate. I sit in a, my, the, the company I work for is a large financial institution or a bank. I'm, or I'm 25. My boss is, is, is 42. Uh, in this case, uh, you know, uh, he or she power dresses. Uh, they've, they've got a very loud voice, they're incredibly articulate, they've got a big presence. Um, I, I take all of those cues and I see that they are, are very, very powerful. And if I'm feeling slightly intimidated, I'm probably overly emphasizing their power, potentially. So I think yeah. that's bias. Uh, you know, bias comes from a range of different things. It can come from information that is presented to you uh, as we know in behavioral economics, recent information is more powerful than old information. Yeah. Uh, that, that shapes our decision. Pain information is more powerful than gain information. These are all inherent biases. Um, I know you are, you know, you do a lot in the world of voice. Uh, yeah. A voice, an accent can bias how you think of an individual unfairly. Um, yeah. 
you know, what school they went to will bias certain people, what universities, which country. I mean, there's probably a lot of people listening to this podcast and the fact that I'm from Australia may bias them negatively yeah. uh, against me just because I'm from Australia, right? And not from New York. So these are, those are discounts that people apply to individuals unfairly um, in many cases, which we see often in prejudice, right? Race, sexism, those are all biases that are, mm. that are, are, are biased, but we all have them. We all have them. So you're saying that virtual engagements or virtual meetings levels the bias a little bit because yes, you're not. I th- I... Sorry, please carry on. Yep. No, so, so it levels the bias a little bit. So the power differentials between a junior and a senior are, are, are mitigated and reduced somewhat. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think there's a lot of advantage. And I think that takes us into, you know, what is a much more distributed system where people are, you know, are, are roughly equal. And you can put, we're now seeing, uh, you know, you can have 20,000 people working from home and they can be in a network and, and they can engage. And there's probably more equality now in those organizations culturally mm. than there has been despite, you know, all the consultants like me working on, 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 on reshaping things and, and, and getting better operating models that, that seem more egalitarian and more flat. Uh, yeah. The virtual world does that remarkably well. So, this podcast is called How to Rock Virtual Engagements. And I chose the word engagements because that is the one criticism of this medium, of this way of communication, in that people say, well, you know, we can talk over a Zoom call or a Skype call or whatever you want to use, but we don't get that engagement. Sometimes we lack the engagement because I'm, I'm talking to a, a screen and there's 30 people, 20 people, five people on this call. I don't know if they're engaging with my content. I don't know if they're engaging with my ideas. Maybe they're sitting there looking at their phone or looking at a Netflix film. We don't know. Yeah. As a, as a training business, how do you get your audience or your students or your clients or your staff to engage? Well, that, that, that's a good question. Look, uh, in Cortex, we have a range of training programs. We call them methodologies. Uh, and it, it's been an interesting, it's been an interesting experience, but let me, let me, let me just go back one. I actually think virtual, a virtual communication as we are having right now between me and you, I'm yep. probably more engaged with you than potentially if I was sitting face to face. If you talk what? about engaged, meaning me focused on you and engaged in this conversation, I am only looking at the screen right now. Mm-hmm. I don't have a whole battery space around me. I'm not looking at my phone. It's not available to me right now. Uh, there's less distraction. Um, nobody's coming in and out of this room. Um, so actually, I'm probably more engaged with you right now. Now, the question is, how long could I sustain this engagement with you? Yeah. Probably, you know, maybe another hour, hour and a half. Sure depending mm. on the quality of the conversation and what happens and breaks. However, can I do that with 35 people? Mm, probably harder. So we, we've just discovered for ourselves as a, in, in our training and in our methodologies that we do, and we do those globally now, um, that uh, the smaller groups are better, for example, than larger groups. Um, we just find that probably six or seven is better than 30. 
um, you know, as much as we can use the chat rooms in Zoom, for example, yeah. uh, and we've got a range of different mechanisms. Some of our facilitators have been doing Zoom for the last year, year and a half. They're pretty, they're pretty skilled at this yeah. way before COVID. Uh, they, they, they've been very skilled at how they do that. Um, but, you know, there is, a, there is a, the physical number is relevant. The second, though, is that I think as soon as you're getting to three or four hours, two or three hours, then the Zoom, the virtual world uh, gets, is, is a hindrance. So we established our learning digital platforms in Cortex about probably four years ago, five years ago, when e-learning was just sort of supposedly peaking, maybe I think it was peaking then, maybe I'm mistaken, but roughly a few years ago. Uh, you know, we, we, we weren't early adopters, but we were keen followers. We yep. invested substantively in our, in our learning platform uh, with the assumption that everybody would go to e-learning. Um, and I think we've paid, a, we've paid a big price for that. Uh, it turns out that that is not the case. Um, that if you want to rock using your language engagements for a few hours, particularly if your material like ours is, is complex, it's not 101 material. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we engage as if we are a sort of Ivy League university course with our material. Uh, what we find is that the, the digital platforms don't work. Um, that you still need the face-to-face, -face. but the problem is you don't need just the face-to-face. -face. If you want to have good face-to-face -face with senior people, then you have to have a rock star. Um, yeah. you, you still have to have the rock star professor. Um, yeah. and, and that's something that we just did not, we, we forgot about, uh, that actually we still needed face-to-face -face, uh, and, and we still needed superstars in front of our, in front of our, our clients, uh, whether that was a classroom of 10, 15 or 20. And uh, that's always been my battle is to find in Cortex somebody who is super smart, understands business, can facilitate, can engage, do all of that, and is not just a facilitator. So we don't employ trainers, we employ business executives who can facilitate and, 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 and engage. That's pretty tough stuff. So. I'll go back to this and say face-to-face -face is still key for complex material if you're teaching. Yeah. So what you're saying is that if you're dealing with complex material, two hours, three hours tops is kind of the ceiling, but you also need a facilitator who's going to draw out the audience, ask the right questions, keep them involved so that they're engaged with this highly complex material for two hours. Because as you said before, if you're on your laptop or whatever, looking into the screen, it's actually, you're using more CPU power in your brain because yes. your auditory facilities are now have to be heightened your visual facilities have to be tuned up a bit your vocal right. facilities have to be upped everything has to be upped a, a little bit more because in a face-to-face mm -hmm. you're kind of a little bit more relaxed because i can see lloyd i can see johnny so i don't have to like bring my a game that's that's also yeah. what i've i've heard from from people dealing with this so you have to it, what am i saying what i'm i'm saying that you have to make it short and sharp <laughs> well, let, let me, 
That, that's true. But again, it depends on, on the content. So let me give you an exper experience we had this week. Uh, a client asked us to do uh, an engagement on client intimacy. Um, and we have a framework for how you build intimacy virtually as well as physically. Okay. Um, it's, it's a very simple framework. It's, it's rolled out. We do this with uh, institutional bankers. We do this with uh, people in government. There's a, there's a range of people who can actually, who, who, who need to adopt that. Now, they said to, they said to me, look, uh, so how long do you think we need? And I said, look, I think it's probably an hour and a half too. Uh, because if we do any more uh, people, they're just not going to sustain it. Yep. So we, we, we did two hours. And I tell you what, it didn't work um, because we actually needed three. Now, uh, if you've got good process, um, meaning you use the chat rooms well, your facilitator is challenging, yep. you, 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 you're giving them exercises, you're throwing things out, then I think you can go to three hours. But it depends on the quality as with anything uh, that you're throwing in, it depends on, you know, is this a facilitator who challenges or is this a facilitator who coordinates? Uh, right. is, is this material easy to answer or is this material, you know, just one-on-one wrote? You know, um, our material, uh, our facilitators are trained to throw in questions to their audience that essentially they can't even answer sometimes because uh, frequently they're trade-offs. Um, you can't be, for example, in the world of client intimacy, you can't be intimate with everybody. Uh, you just don't have the time. Um, and so, so what do you do? Who do you choose? How do you become intimate with somebody in 180 seconds? So uh, there's no easy answer for any of this. Uh, there are things you can do to be better, but you, you don't have the answer. That's all we can do in Cortex. Okay. Without giving away your trade secrets, Talk to me a little bit about virtual intimacy. What does that mean? How do you teach it? Well, I, well, I, I think virtual intimacy is, it's not actually very different to physical intimacy. Um, I think it, it still requires what we call is, is a learn model in, in, in Cortex, which is you still have to listen to the client. And, and to listen, uh, there are simple rules for listening, right? The mm -hmm. first, is just keep your mouth shut. So just, you don't speak. The second is you may ask very open-ended discovery questions, which just allow them to speak. But there is a difference between listening and understanding. And understanding is deeper than just listening. Listening, I can just hear what you say. If I understand you, I'm reflecting some of what you are feeling that is beneath your statement. So are, are you feeling disappointment? In yourself, are you feeling disappointment in us? And is that disappointment leading to anger? Me actually stating that to you gets me to a level of intimacy. Mm. Me saying to you, you know, Alistair, I can hear some disappointment in your voice about us and, and our performance, and I'm hearing that. That that is a lot deeper than me just just listening to you. It's actually telling you a little bit about what your emotions are. Now, you don't have to get that right, but you should have a go. Uh, to do that, uh, you have to stop yourself from giving advice. And, and most people in the world of business and in client-facing jobs want to solve problems and be smart. And, and our model says, there is a time for being smart, just don't be smart early on. Be with the yeah. person first and, and then be smart. And so we say, listen, understand, and then we say reframe 
through some insight, which essentially is smart. And finally, we say nurture. And nurture is just put your arms around the problem and say you're going to be there uh, for them, but you need to tell the truth. Uh, you, you might be there, but you only have a certain amount of time. You can't turn this, this product around. You can't turn their disappointment around, but you can improve. So we go learn, understand, reframe through insight, and then nurture through reassurance. It's a pretty simple model. I don't know if, and, and, and you do that virtually. You do that on a phone call. You, you might even do that physically. It's not really that different. Yeah. So I have a bias to the voice, as you've clearly defined and accepted, and you know my history and what I do. Yeah. And what I've also believed is that if, you in, if you're talking in this environment, in this virtual context, you have to heighten your oral abilities I say 25%. So you need to you just right. need to listen to those vocal cues. What's the emotion saying? He said he's disappointed, but what does he actually mean? He's probably not disappointed. He's really pissed off. <laughs> he's yeah. just said disappointed, but mm. it's it's mm. dripping with a lot more than just disappointed. Yeah. Which made me think that getting back to your point of actually in this environment you can be more focused. In this environment, you can have technology that allows you to focus orally. What I mean by that is I've got a headset that has uh, noise cancellation on the ears. So when I switch the noise cancellation on in the ears, it blocks out the ambient sounds. In other words, I only hear what you're saying. Wow, that's so interesting. It, it focuses my, ear, my hearing on what you're saying. So... Actually, actually, I think, you know, getting back to your point, I just had this thought now, actually getting back to your point, you could also, you could also use technology if you have the right technology to focus your hearing and really focusing on those little vocal cues that your client is offering up. I, I, that is such a simple thing that you've just said. It's, it's almost what I said, uh, it just reminds me when we are speaking about face-to-face, -face, and I said there could be so many distractions. Yep. Uh, I don't know if this is what you're saying. Yep, yep. Um, and, and what you're saying is if you put these, 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 th th this headset on that can get rid of these ambient sounds, and I'm only focused on what, what, what somebody else says, I'm, I'm listening in a much deeper way. I mean, I see yep. that's what you're telling me. Yes, yes, it yes. It stops the distraction. I think that's so, that, that is so true. Um, that, but let me ask you a question. How do you, what's a simple technique to, to pick up what somebody's saying through tone of voice? And is there one or is that just intuitive? Do I have to still intuit that actually that disappointment is pissed off and it's angry rather than just disappointed? I mean, outside of the obvious, what is there, are there rules around tone that, that could give me a simple framework to say, ah, oh, that tone tells me that, a shriek tells me this, um, mm. you know, a pause tells me that. That's a very interesting question. <laughs> I've never been asked that. And it's, I think you could probably develop some kind of a methodology or something around that. To be honest, I think it's something that you're born with. Some people are more orally intuitive or orally sensitive. So I think it's a factor of the mechanics that they have on their ears. I'm just riffing now. I've, I've, I'm riffing, I'm thinking 
as you ask the question. I think it's a factor of the, the mechanics of your ears, how good are your machines, <laughs> and how you're wired as a person in your brain. Do you pick up on those micro variations? Do you pick up on, he said disappointed, but he means something more. Because also, like mm. you say, you could also be biased the other way. You could be mm -hmm. so sensitive that you're actually oversensitizing everything and going, oh, the client's pissed off, but they're not actually pissed off. They, you, you, you mm -hmm. kind of, you go the other way, <laughs> if you know what mm -hmm. I mean. Mm -hmm. So how do you develop a, a, a centered way for understanding vocal bias or, or vocal cues? It's, a, it's an interesting question. Mm. I'll have to think about I mean, that, I, Lloyd. I, I, <laughs> I suppose it still comes back to some of the, again, the biases, though. We, we may misinterpret those. You know, for some people, a loud voice is very intimidating. For others, culturally, everybody speaks in a loud voice. And uh, it, it depends, again, on your history and a range of things, which, which makes it harder for rules. But, I, you know, rules are there to give us some guidelines and some some indications anyway it's, it's something to think about at least thinking about somebody's voice and and already should be another data point rather than just what they their words i think that's yeah. what you're telling me yeah 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 I, just just on your point there like i've got an italian girlfriend uh, partner the mother of my child and as we know the italians are quite loud and they they speak like in a South certain... Africa yeah <laughs> But, you know, like when she talks to her mother, when Alicia talks to her mother, you know, in the early days before I didn't understand Italian, I understand Italian now. I was like, why are you shouting? Why are you arguing? Why are you, why are you fighting? She's like, we're not fighting. We're just talking. So I'm like, well, it sounds like you're fighting. And so those, and then when she speaks English, there is a, a, she brings her Italian melody into the English, which doesn't quite often translate. So it makes English a little bit more aggressive. And so, and so you, 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 you misinterpret some things where she's saying it in her Italian way, but with English words and you go, but why, why do you talk to me like that? It's like, well, I'm not I'm just, I'm just asking you to pass me the, the water. Oh, I thought you were being a bit aggressive in the way that you asked me to pass the water. Mm. So <laughs> it's kind of like, I guess if you, if you know you're going to be speaking to somebody from New York and you go, okay, I'm going to be speaking to these guys from New York, these banking guys from New York, I need to just be less sensitive because they're going to be more direct or mm. they, they, I think if you come in with that attitude or understanding, maybe that would help you. I'm not sure. 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 Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you said that you, in your answers, getting back to some cortex stuff, you said that you have the LUN framework. What is the LUN framework? Well, that, that's basically what I've just gone through. It's sort of what we, that what we would say is, 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 is listen, understand, reframe through insight and nurture. That, that's really what our framework is. That, but that's a framework for, for client intimacy. Uh, that's not the stuff that we would do for, for other areas of complex selling. That's just purely a framework for how to build intimacy quicker. Uh, mm. Obviously, by the way, I mean, the way we define intimacy, if we're just staying on this topic for a moment, is, is anything a client would tell you that they wouldn't normally reveal uh, or, or, or anything a client would tell you that is outside of the normal business conversation. 
so, so things that they would share about their organization that they wouldn't share with, with somebody else. Uh, that might be an organizational restructure. It might be the fact that they are about to leave the organization. Um, but I think, you know, uh, to develop intimacy in part uh, also requires you to be more vulnerable with the client. Uh, I mean, you have to show yourself a little to other people if they're going to be intimate with you. Yeah. Um, you can't just be the template. And, and, and that is something we emphasize a lot in Cortex is um, that dimension. But of course, you know, we, we're working across cultures. So that is not always appropriate in different cultures, but people can make their choice. They, they know what's, a, what's appropriate for their culture and what isn't. Yeah. I spoke to an old colleague of mine, just getting back to the vulnerability, trust, uh, uh, um, intimacy. And he said to me that he read it somewhere. I don't know if you know this. He said that when you meet somebody face to face, that rapport or that relationship can withstand about 18 months of not seeing the other person for the relationship still to be uh, intact or have that trust. In other words, you yeah. can meet your client once face to face. They know Lloyd, they know Alistair. Thereafter, mm. you can have Zoom calls, telephone calls, and it'll still work. Have you, mm. have you been read that or understood that? No, I, I, I remember reading that a while back. I actually did come across that I think there were one or two studies on that. Uh, I can't remember, but I do remember. And look, intuitively, it makes sense. I mean, uh, what you're really doing in a face-to-face -face way is that you, you're creating a bond that is, that is much more substantive. Mm -hmm. um, there is a sense of us having connected at a deeper level, uh, which is why people shake hands, right? Shaking hands is, is a connection. It's, it's a physical connection. Hugging is a physical connection. Uh, it, it has to be deeper than just talking on the phone. And I think what that is really doing is what connection does, um, what social connection does is it creates some level of obligation. I, I, I know this person exists. Uh, there is a, a human side to them. And so as soon as I know there's a human side to somebody, I, I'm always just a little bit more cautious on how I treat them. I mean, it's, 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 it's no different to different industries. By, by the very nature of the industry, some industries are more, are better with people than others. Not, not because those people are anything, but it's just the DNA of the industry. If I'm in real estate, and I know there'd be lots of people in real estate who'll hate me and will probably write to you about this. But if I'm in real estate and I'm doing, you know, 400 transactions a year, and I know that I'll never see you again, uh, you know, the next time I might see you is seven or, or 10 years time when you want to buy or sell a house again. Sure, I know there's word of mouth and all of that and that helps. But at the end of the day, the demand is, is a property boom. Largely, it's transactional. And um, so, you know, my level of obligation is a lot less than if I'm an account manager and I'm seeing you every day and I have to account for my behavior and performance. And, and so I think there's certain industries where you just... You, you understand connection leads to obligation and you're more careful. And, uh, you know, uh, that, that, that intuitively makes sense. I'm, I'm not sure I'm making sense right now, but that, no, no, that I, makes sense to me. Right? You do. Yeah. So yeah. If, you, if you have the absence of contact, 
because you're meeting with your customer the first time visually, virtually, on a Zoom call, whatever. You have no contact. You can't physically shake their hand. There's less obligation because there's less contact. There's less physical exchange of energy. But maybe one way to mitigate that loss or that that um, absence of contact is to be more vulnerable to share a more personal story right up front. Is that would that be a, a tactic that you could use? Yeah. Look. Look. I think that you know if you think about obligation, there is. There are lots of different dimensions to obligation. By the way, there's a, there's a social there's there's social obligation, meaning I have to invite you around because you are family. That's just yeah. like I'm part of that group. I, I, I don't like you, but <laughs> you know your family. If I didn't invite you, the cost to me is too great. So actually, I'm actually doing it for myself. Um, at, yeah. at the end of the day, I just don't feel like the penalties that would occur. Uh, there's moral obligation in which I feel like. That's what I should do. Those are my ethics. Those are what I've been brought up with. So I think there's a series of obligations. I mean, part of moral obligation for some is you've, you've treated me well in the past. Uh, you gave me some leeway in the past. You helped me with this. You've been my account manager or my investment banker for the last seven or eight years. And by the way, uh, I feel obligated to you. So even though you're not doing something well right now, I'm not going to leave you. And sometimes clients, remarkably, are pretty blunt in their criticism um, with organizations, not because they're nasty, but actually because they, pretty, they, they want the organization, their supplier, to improve because they feel obligated to them. They have a long history. So I think obligation is, is all of that, plus also a connection. It's not just the shaking of the hand and yep. seeing somebody. Yep. It has to yep. go yep. with some material things that have been done uh, to that individual, right? Um, but, but all of us are doing tons of things every single day only because of obligation. I mean, I've invited people over for dinner only because I'm obligated. Mm. Because they've invited me over for dinner, uh, that type of stuff. Uh, and of course, I'm not going to be explicit about it. I'm not going to say, the only reason I'm inviting you over for dinner is because... <laughs> Because you invited me, you know, uh, I mean, you, the world has to, we, we have, a, you know, we have to, we have manners and we, otherwise, there's a little bit of oil in the world to, to soften it up. But, but yes, I think a lot of us, a lot of our behavior is based on obligation. And, and I think when you become intimate with clients and, 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 and you have client intimacy and, and, and you know them and you're part of their world, they'll feel more obligated to you. And that's why. The reward is not always in the short term. I mean, what you really see with brilliant people, and I see this with many of our clients across different industries, they, they really do understand what the long game is. And I know it's a cliche, but they understand there is no immediate reward to some of their effort right now, but they get something later. This person is there, they're part of a network, the introductions later. It's not an immediate transaction. Um, Whereas people who are very transactional uh, tend to tend to go through their network pretty fast. Yeah, yeah. The and there's upside, by the way, to be transactional. There's massive upside. Otherwise, people wouldn't do it. Uh, the upside is you save a lot of time. Yeah. And you, you don't, and caring requires effort and time. But I guess the people that have invested in caring and intimacy before this COVID nineteen pandemic 
will reap the rewards now because people are going to be looking, they're going to be traumatized, they're going to be unsure of themselves, less secure, and they're going to seek out those relationships, those business relationships, which made them feel comfortable, intimate, trusted, liked. A hundred percent. One of the things we've just spoken about in one of our courses that we did this week was that uh, no different to trading, uh, whether you're a financial trader or any trader, volatility in any in any uh, area of trade provides you with advantage. Uh, there, there are advantages to be obtained in volatility. Um, equally, in a relationship, when relationships are volatile, when the world is fragile, uh, there's opportunity and space for you to deepen that. Um, it's much harder to deepen a relationship when the boundaries are very, very narrow and closed. And so in the world of COVID-19, we are feeling fragile. Uh, it's, it's a volatile world. There's lots of movement and fluidity. There's lots of space for you to find to build stronger relationships with clients. And sometimes when there's no volatility, by the way, you're carrying a lot of risk. Uh, so people always think volatility is more risky, but sometimes no volatility is very risky. So, you know, if, if I have no volatility uh, in my relationship with my wife and it looks perfect, I, I could be carrying a lot of risk, potentially. <laughs> Maybe she's doing a whole batch of things that are very risky to me. So the volatility yeah. at least gives me an opportunity to see what she's saying and what she's thinking and expressing uh, versus this closed off world, which looks all fine and doesn't demonstrate volatility and we all very well managed, but there's a lot of stuff underneath that I can't see. So yeah. I think this is the advantage of, of, of the current world right now. It's like, uh, I agree with you 100%. It's like when you're doing a barbecue or a braai and the coals are there. And when you, when you shake the coals or move the coals, a lot more heat comes up. Right. And <laughs> I just, I think that, that that's what that means to me. Yeah, if you move, metaphor. move the coals, the heat comes up. Mm. Yeah, yeah, in yeah. your pre-interview questionnaire, you said, um, what is effective? You wanted to talk about what is effective when people are overwhelmed with information and are in crisis. How do you communicate? I think we've been touching on that just right now. Mm. I suppose the only thing I'd add, Alistair, is, you know, this comes from my, my work many, many years ago uh, when I was working with trauma victims uh, many of whom had lost their kids or lost their spouses or uh, who had been gang raped or had seen their kids die in front of them. Um, you know, the one thing that we know about uh, why post-traumatic stress occurs um, is, is people have had extremely fearful and painful events. And, and what post-traumatic stress uh, often is, is it, that, that, that painful moment uh, is what trauma experts call frozen. It is fresh. It's like you, you will never forget that moment. You, yeah. you never forget, you know, for me, I've, I've had uh, stage four cancer. I can remember very clearly uh, where the doctor was sitting when he told me that I had stage four cancer in my liver. Uh, I can remember what time of day it was. Um, it, it is literally frozen. It is fresh. The yeah. thing about very volatile, fragile periods is that people equally remember who was there for them and who wasn't. And so your clients will remember very clearly, did you support me or didn't you? 
And by the way, was that support a little process support? Did you make the call because it was rushed and you had to? Did you give me some cliche telling me that, you know, whatever goes down goes up when I've just lost 5 million bucks? Um, <laughs> you know, I just lost 40 million bucks on a currency hedge and you're telling me, you know, don't worry. No, the, don't tell me don't worry. You're not listening to me. So, you know, the point about fragile, stressful situations is that people get very judgmental about support and what who supports them and whether people are listening or not. And so I would say, you know, this is a great opportunity for many organizations to build deep, deep client relationships, but equally it's precarious uh, yeah. that you will be judged on some of this behavior and that that behavior and your lack of support, even if it was done and the judgment is unfair, will get locked in and your brand gets impacted for many years later. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess that feeds into the, the other thing that you wanted to talk about, which is what does it take to adjust a mindset from abundance to scarcity and how that impacts on an engagement? Yeah, this is a question I have more, not so much in my training world, but in my consulting world, when I'm working with senior executives or CEOs uh, at, at a senior level, uh, all of us, you know, uh, have an orientation and a default and there are many defaults that we have. Some people are much better in the world of abundance uh, and the world of abundance is let me grow, let me acquire, let me stretch. Uh, and, 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 and some of those leaders are not very good in the world of scarcity. Uh, and so they may fail to restructure their organizations as fast as they should. Uh, sometimes they, 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 you know, they haven't cut as strong as they should, which will lead to uh, potentially their, their, their companies going into default a year or two later. And so, you know, knowing where you're strong uh, is, is, is important. Some people are just, you know, they live in a world of scarcity and so they're always afraid. Uh, entrepreneurs frequently live in the world of abundance. Uh, they have a lot less fear and they see the world as abundant and they see taking risk as abundance and they, they yeah. you know, everything will come right. And so, you know, they, their level of optimism makes them rich. It's very hard to be super rich if you're a pessimist, um, you know, unless, unless you, 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 you're going to short the market consistently. Um, but, you know, and some people do, but, but it, largely, uh, optimists tend to be, you know, bigger and, and, and have bigger visions and tend to do better financially at that level. Yeah. Yeah. Just on your Lloyd, on your, on your personal battles and your personal victories, you know, you spoke about stage four cancer, which must've been hugely traumatic. How did you process it? How did you, how did you get over that? Um, it, it's uh, it was interesting, uh, Alistair. You know, I was diagnosed firstly with stage two. Uh, stage two, by the way, for people who are not familiar with it, is where the cancer is contained within the organ. So it's it's a lot more manageable, and frequently mm. surgery, you know, is used, uh, uh, and and the cancer is removed via surgery. And and surgery is is still, I think, uh, largely the gold standard in cancer. Um, and so when I got that diagnosis, it was pretty devastating and shocking. And then I, I had my ascending colon removed and, and uh, it was obviously tough, but, but I felt it was manageable. 
Uh, stage four is much more problematic in the sense that your chance of survival is very low. Um, yeah. And you're now on multiple treatments and it gets very complex. Um, I, I initially was completely overwhelmed. Um, I mean, just with the amount of information, with the fact that I may die within 12 months with, uh, I had a series of complications, which I'm not going to go into where I had so many doctors working on and they disagreed. Should I have surgery? Should I have chemo first? Will it spread everywhere? It was very complex and very, and very, very stressful for me. And my anxiety frequently was, was extremely high, but, um, yeah. I, I, I got myself a, I got myself quite a lot of counsel as as I frequently do, and I, I I got somebody who who was a sort of coach, and she said to me uh, two things that I that I probably uh, employed. The first was not what she said. I, I'm not interested in what you're going to do. I'm interested in what you're going to give up to survive your stage four. And I, and I didn't really understand the question. And I said. Well, I, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to fight. I'm a fighter. I'm not going to give up. And she said, no, I'm not, I'm not asking you that. I'm asking you, what are you going to give up? And I didn't, I, I struggled with that question. And, I, and, and what I realized she was talking about is she was talking about what identities and roles I was going to give up that were going to make me stronger. And what she was saying is your focus needs to be yourself. And if you if you're taking your parenting role very seriously and you're the breadwinner and you take that very seriously, um, you have to give that all up now. Mm. And can you give up an identity that has been deeply forged in your mind and give it up? And, and, and frankly, it's really hard. And, and as I've discovered uh, over the last four or five years, being part of the stage four cancer club, which is different to the stage two cancer club, um, where people have died in my cancer club, we, 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 we almost can't give up our identities. We almost die with them. You know, the, 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 in, in my club, the responsible ones have been responsible until the day they died. They were still fixing up their wills and organizing everything because they were responsible. The, the fun ones were taking drugs three weeks before they were dying and trying to have a party. And, um, and, and to give up your identity is relevant because you have to focus everything on yourself. And, and that was pretty hard. So that was one lesson. But a yep. second was, if you're going to mobilize yourself, you need to take all your skills that you think, what are you exceptional at? What do you think you're very good at? And how can you use that in the fight against cancer? And for me, it was, you know, I, I enjoy analyzing things. I like to lead. Uh, I like structure. I like numbers. Um, and so I set up a war room and my war room was, uh, my cancer was my business. Uh, to be, I, I had an organizational diagram and I was the CEO <laughs> and I called the CEO my body because I got intimidated by doctors and I thought, no, I'm the CEO. Uh, I had a first level of defense, uh, which were my primary doctors. I had second level who were more lateral. I had, I drew up an organizational structure that I called, I had advisors. Uh, which was my oncologist. My fixers were my surgeons. My managers were my chemo managers. My program manager was my GP. And, yeah. and I had my data and that's what I did, right? And I try to mobilize all of that. I, I don't think that really made any difference about the fact that I'm alive today. I think the fact that I'm alive today is purely luck. It's just biology for no other reason. There are lots of people who try and, and no matter what happens, they will die. And I'm not saying that's the approach. So that's the way I, I, I try to take control 
Uh, I try to give up things, but finally, um, the third answer, which is in my video, which you can see on YouTube, which is called Five Rooms, um, I decided that I needed to get the best out of my pain, that I needed to, rather than the pain use me, I needed to use my pain to take advantage. So I, I, I'd never wanted to go back and just get back to zero. I needed to be, uh, I needed to gain from this painful experience. I needed to find cancer extremely healing of some of my own demons in my life. And frankly, uh, it has been healing. I still have those demons, they don't go away. But if the demon was a minus seven, it's probably gone to a minus four. Um, yeah. And that's, you know, that's good progress. So I try to use my cancer as the most substantively wonderful experience. And in many ways, uh, it's one of the best, worst events I've ever had. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think that would be, wow. That's a, that's an impressive way to, to deal with it. And from giving up the things you need to survive to the organizational chart to the looking at it for what it would give you most substantively. I think that's a, that's an excellent way to, to look at it. So well done, well done for doing that and well done for beating it. Thank you. Well, I, I, I don't know if I have beaten it, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, and I, I don't think it's about beating. It's, it's, it's just about trying to use it because there are lots of people who do many things and who don't beat it, but they, they did their best. And that's why I'm saying as with most things. And, and, you know, I, I love uh, the concept of evolution because I think evolution is humbling. It's, it's evolution teaches you that things are so random. Yeah. Uh, it's filled with genetics and, yeah. and, I, you know, I was an outlier, a very unlucky person to get it. And I was a very lucky person still to be alive. And, you know, uh, that, that, that's, that's my current situation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, no, for sure. For sure. I, I, I concur and I believe in what you're saying, you know, genetics and luck and, you know, sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. It's, it's you Absolutely. know, na nature decides and you... <laughs> you know just hopefully you're on the right side of what nature decides for you yep yep um this has been a fantastic chat lloyd very very interesting and i'm very conscious of time because you're in australia you're a winding up your day and i'm starting I'm winding my... up and i've got a staff meeting that is about to start and i'm late so i'm gonna have to 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 leave you as soon as possible but but thank you so much for having me on and i i i love that stuff about the the voice and and you've taught me a lot previously about voice so, so thank you <laughs> no worries so if people want to get hold of you or your organization what must they do ah uh, that's a good good question uh look i i do i i do post on linkedin i've only started more recently there is the five rooms video if you want to look at or just feel free to write to me uh oh. i'm at lloyd uh Double L O Y D dot yep. Vogelman V for Victor O G E L M A N at Cortex C O R T E K S dot com dot au. But I assume as you'll put some of that up on your yep. on your page. Yeah. Thanks very much, Lloyd. Have a good Thank day you or good and evening. Enjoy your day. <laughs> yeah, we'll do. Thank you. Take care. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Cheers. Bye.